Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning into the Broke Down Podcast. This is episode number 63. My name is Jonathan, and I'm glad to have you here with me for this one. Quick reminder that the Broke Down Podcast is a proud member of Osiris. Osiris Media is building communities with podcasts and events around the music and arts that you love and are passionate about. Today's guest here is Keller Williams, and I have to tell you, Keller was on fellow Osiris podcast Inside Out with Turner and Seth very recently. They run down some different roads with Keller and get them to pick a little bit, too. So when you're done with this, if you want more Keller Williams or for all kinds of great music coverage, check them out, along with many, many fine shows over at OsirisPod.com. All right, so do we have news? Probably. Bob Weir is back out on the road again with the Wolf Brothers. I haven't seen too many reports from the road yet, but I'm sure there will be something to share in due course. Maybe we'll look in on that next time. Uh, I should remind you that we talked to Melvin Seals on the last episode. If you didn't listen to that, go listen to that. It's pretty cool. As mentioned then, he's coming out to the East Coast for a bunch of dates, so be sure to check in on that and see if he's coming your way. So as I said, this go-round, my guest is Keller Williams. Keller has been out there doing it on the road for a good while now, and it was a pleasure to chat with him. He's hitting all or at least most of your favorite festivals this summer, solo, with the Keels, or with Grateful Grass. We're going to get into all of that and a lot more. Don't let me waste any more of your time other than to say you can get links to his tour dates and the playlist and everything else on the show notes at brokedownpodcast.blogspot.com. So let's get right into that interview. <laughs> uh, Keller, before we get into it, I, I got to tell you, um, I've, I've had a good time checking out your uh, checking out your music over the years. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate you saying that. That's cool. Very cool. Yeah, so um, what I do here with Broke Down Podcast, I've been doing it for a few years, and uh, I talk to talk to all kinds of musicians, and uh, some of them are actually fans of the Grateful Dead, but it's not a, a total requirement. Uh, but, you know, we talk about your music, and then uh, I'm, I'm going to inevitably steer it towards some Grateful Dead talk, um, which is sure. more than appropriate, as uh, one of the things we are engaged here to talk about is some uh, Grateful Grass performances that you've got on the schedule. So, uh, sure. Before we get down into all of that, I, I'd like to take it all the way back. I'd like to kind of get a picture of you, uh, a broad picture of you as a player and whatnot. Um, and I wanted to know, because my uh, limited research and that I didn't do as much research as maybe some journalists might, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it doesn't really uh, tell me, where, when did what started you as a guitar player? I know you started young. But what was uh, what made you pick it up and stick to it? I think it, it started as like a three-year-old, believe it or not, wow. uh, with with the show Hee Haw, with uh, Royal uh, uh, Buck Owens and Roy Clark, you know, picking in a grin and and Grandpa Jones and Minnie Pearl and and. Uh, I think it started from there and I asked, you know, I just begged my parents as a little t annoying toddler to, to get a guitar and they, they got me a guitar from the Nichols department store, uh, which is now the hard times cafe and Q huh. and, uh, uh, the stage where I play at the hard times cafe and Q was actually where, 
the music department was in Nichols, where my guitar came from, my very first guitar. And that's hanging on the wall downstairs. The back, the, the back of the guitar is all blown out. Wow. Uh, but I showed my parents, I showed my parents that the other night and they were, they were quite impressed that I still had it. But, uh, you know, from there, uh, um, you know, I just pretended to play, um, uh, from that little guitar, it kind of went to the hockey stick because the <laughs> hockey stick kind of looked more like a, uh, electric guitar, you know, and so I had like a piece of twine as my strap, and then there was a little leftover piece of twine uh, to simulate the cord for the electric guitar. And that was like uh, playing along to things like Kiss and things. Uh, I was into Kiss and uh, things my sister was into, which was like uh, ACDC and uh, so uh, that kind of led to uh, actually learning a few of the cowboy type of uh, chords, you know, the C, G, D, E, E minor type of things, you know, just Those down on the top. And, and, you know, it's, it's, that's kind of where you start. Actually, the first song was, of course, Smoke on the Water, you know, the don't, 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 <laughs> E, G, A, A sharp, A, E G A G E, just like open third fifth, you know that was the first one, and then it just kind of led from there into like, um, I guess like uh, REM covers and and then and then covers of like things that my my parents knew, which kind of and by that time I was about thirteen, and then by the time I was about sixteen I started to. Uh, put all these chords together with uh, songs that my parents knew and kind of targeted my parents' crowd and and got like uh, uh, happy hours at uh, one. Uh, the first place was the uh, uh, was called the Rappahannock Inn, which is now Spirits in downtown Fredericksburg. Sweet. And I played I played on the back porch, and then the second several gigs were at the Fredericksburg Country Club and uh, to where I was playing like from four to six with like a coat and tie and playing things like uh, Have You Ever Seen the Rain, you know, by Credence and like uh, Margaritaville and, and, and Eagles songs and things that these that the coat and tie country club crowd can sing along to. And <laughs> that was, I think that was 86. And uh, and then kind of led into college with some uh, some bands. Uh, uh, we were like uh, the first band I think was called Downhill Development with uh, uh, Juno Pitchford on drums. He is the son of Gaya Dagbalola, who's a famous Fredericksburg uh, teacher slash blues singer. From the band uh, Sapphire, the Uppity Blues oh, yeah. Women, and uh, and then the guy, other guy who kind of taught me how to play guitar uh, or the chords, Kirk Edwards, and and we went back and forth off of bass and guitar and played things like um, uh, Violent Femmes and Modern English and uh, things of that nature. 1986, 87, and then that kind of led into the Living End, uh, which 
was kind of like a darker uh, college rock, which kind of led to uh, the symptoms, which was a play on the cure. Okay, so they mm-hmm. were the cure, and we we were the symptoms, <laughs> and then that led into uh, college, which was like the five thousand mics, uh, which was you know a lot of Grateful Dead experimental uh, music, and you know just kind of uh, slacker hippie music uh, uh, of the time, and then. That led to Sweet Feet in the Toe Jam, which led to the all-natural band. Okay, now you're caught up to one that I've heard of. (laughs) The all-natural band was actually one that, uh, by that time, you know, we had friends in other colleges who were in fraternities, and we started to play kind of the fraternity circuit. And this was probably 1990, 1991. And, uh, and by that time, uh, we were playing a lot and the band wanted to take all the money we were making and put it in to, uh, a record project. And at that time I had, uh, gone on dead tour and done papers in the parking lot in handwritten and turn them, you know, turn them in, uh, like three weeks late. (laughs) And I had, I had been, uh, politely asked to take two semesters off from college at that point. So at that point, uh, the money we were making was, you know, needed to be paid for rent and for my phone card at the time, you know, this is, we're talking 1991, so you had to have like a phone card, right? This is that was right when I was starting to see the dead, and uh, there you go, there you go. Uh, yeah. So and then so uh, ninety one, you know, um, to kind of like ninety, it was like eighty seven to like ninety ninety three, I guess. Uh, it was a lot of blocks of Grateful Dead shows and then lots of trying to uh, play music as well as do kind of like uh, um, uh, temporary uh, construction jobs through these companies to where you can go and make a certain amount of money, you know, for like a week and then split <laughs> and that, and it, it's cool. <laughs> I did, I did a lot of that, uh, and started working for this landscaper guy, you know? And, uh, so it was a lot of gigs, a lot of that work, a lot of grateful dead shows. And then by like 93, uh, I kind of focused on just doing my own shows and, and I was like booking myself like six nights a week. Uh, a lot of times, you know, in the earlier parts of the week, it was like 50, 60, 70, $80 gigs. And then later on, it got in, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, it was like 250, you know. So it wasn't like, even though I was playing all the time, I wasn't banking a lot of money. And then I guess 95, I moved to Steamboat. Uh, uh, and on the way, I, I went to Telluride and, and uh, saw String Cheese and then uh, got in with them, 
heavy, you know, just seeing them and then finally met them. And then by, you know, skip ahead, you know, to 97, uh, I leave Steamboat and open for them on like a West Coast, uh, like a, a West Coast to the East Coast tour. And that was the first time ever playing the West Coast was 97 with the uh, string cheese. Wow. So, so, and then from there, it just kind of, uh, it just kind of built from there. And that's, that's the, that's the long story. Sorry. If, uh, <laughs> no, that's if it went, if it went uh, you can, I, you can cut that, you can cut that up and edit that out however you like. Are you kidding? We're going to people, hopefully people will look back on this when they want to, you know, do their research <laughs> on what Keller Williams did and how it got to where he is. So uh, no, that was, we can, hey, we, we, we can only hope. <laughs> that is the most comprehensive answer I could ask for. That was, uh, uh, it's funny. So that actually takes you right up to around when I believe I first became aware uh, that I was seeing you. You know, I, I don't think I ever caught you when I was at school in uh, in Hampton Roads and in Norfolk because uh, we may have not overlapped precisely. Although I think you were playing the beach pretty regular in those days in the early nineties. But uh, I think Wilmer's Park. Somewhere in the late '90s, uh, I think I, I caught you on on the main stage, and it was your um, your mouth flugel that hooked my ear and made me go, "What the hell is going on on that stage over there?" And uh, <laughs> it stopped me and watched to uh, made me watch. And uh, you, know. you know, I don't I don't think I actually played Wilmer's Park very much. I think the the one time that I remember was, I want to say, like an autumn equinox. Yeah, I did a couple of those. Yeah. I didn't go as many times as I my, my memory wants to tell me when I sit down and look at the actual dates. So it might have been that. that that's, how, that that's how I calendarize it, you know, because I think that was uh, like Charlie Hunter and John Schofield. Yep. Was that, does that sound familiar to or, you? Or maybe a, uh, was it Schofield? Medeski Martin and or Schofield Martin and one of those uh, type things. I can't keep track of them. Yeah, either. Um, I, I, I know. I know that it, I, I was a huge Charlie Hunter fan on record, and that was I think that was the first time that I ever saw uh, him up up close was uh, at at that show, and I want to say it was like I want to say it was like maybe Medeski. Charlie Hunter, Schofield, and then like Clyde Stubblefield on drums. Right. Yes, uh, like I'd... the soup, the super funky drummer, you know, from from the James Brown era. And uh, I, I I just remember being very young and <laughs> and uh, and up front, like kind of rail riding, you know. I think and I was I, I back say, for that set, but I was definitely uh, that was the one. So. I have yeah, I have two kids now. They're uh, eleven and fifteen, and and that's one of the festivals that I remember like pre kids with my wife and I actually like hula hooping on top of the motor home that we had that was side stage. And we were, we were visible, I think by the entire audience at that moment, we didn't give a <laughs> shit. Yeah. I think, um, I spent my time near the back during the kind of the bigger acts and that, but yeah, I went to Wilmer's a few times. It was a cool spot. Um, and I, I feel obliged to point out that I have an 11 and 16 year old uh, kid. So. Oh, good. Yeah, we're right, right in the same page. We're right in also, the same page. I also have a 23 year old, so I was very soon with baby uh, around that time. I may have, may have yeah, you, had her you, already. 
Uh, so yes, yeah, you wild times. You win. <laughs> you win. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, the, I had to move to Fredericksburg a little while later, and uh, of course started seeing you pretty regular. But um, you mentioned Charlie Hunter as being one of those cats that you were way into at the time, and I can totally get that. And it actually goes to a question I had because. Despite being a deadhead as a guitar player, you don't sound like Jerry or Bobby, um, which I think is a, a merit, honestly, uh, because we had Jerry and Bobby. Um, but who were your, once you really knuckled into playing and were got past the hockey stick, um, who were you, uh, who, who do you listen to? Who drove you? Who do you think influenced your sound? I would say the main instrumental name that i can name at this moment would be michael hedges great have you ever heard of, have you ever heard of him absolutely aerial boundaries was an early record for me in the high school days so i think i was about 18 and my friend uh, ted sniffin gave me a a cassette tape that had live on the double planet and uh that you know i at, at 18 you know i my first show was 87 so at 18 i was 88 and so i had had that kind of experimental gene planted into my brain at this point uh yet it was very a fresh brain a fresh young 18 brain but yet on the road to experiment you know and and then and then I'm introduced to Michael Hedges, and it just blows my mind how one guy, uh, not not only his records but his live shows, is really what what really influenced me. Uh, how one guy could command the attention of an audience, and, uh, and granted, he was playing places with seats, so it kind of uh, uh, lended people the idea to sit and be quiet, which is, uh, uh, a lost art, uh, in, in the music world, uh, of people sitting and listening without talking, uh, and, and texting. Uh, and so uh, it was like a live art, uh, with music. You, and it, it just grabbed me. And he was the one thing I, you know, there's so many things I got from Michael Hedges. One, obviously, being the the command of the audience, and then the, uh, the uh, difference of of tunings that he used. He would, uh, you know, uh, do uh, different tunings and and really do different voices uh, on the guitar. Uh, but then the the main thing I took from him, I think, the way he was able to take a cover song and with these different tunings and with his different grooves, uh, make them his own, you know, uh, but yet completely different and completely groovy songs like, uh, you know, Watchtower, uh, by Bob Dylan, um, uh, come together, uh, by the Beatles songs like, uh, um, uh, uh, fine young cannibals, you know, things like this where, you know, 
these songs that you that you hear on the radio uh he took them and, and made them completely different but but you know true to the song and i i took a lot from that and and took it into my world with these amazing liberties that i take with these songs that i i get paid to play at these festivals <laughs> <laughs> um i have to ask do you ever run down uh john fahey rabbit hole as a player you know uh uh being a leo Kotke fan uh and diving more into leo Kotke, i i went down a john fay hole <laughs> and uh uh i got to hang out with leo a lot uh we did like 27 shows together um half of which we did in the same vehicle after the tour started which was really great that's awesome. but uh but yeah john fay he is definitely uh like a like a psychedelic delta blues picker you know in the sense where he was according to leo you know his mind was gone but then he would lean into these arrangements and and drift off into some distant improv and then kind of bring it back and that was if you really dive into some of the live recordings after talking to leo it's it's a beautiful thing yeah well i've um yeah i've got a bit of a, a stash of that stuff myself so i I'll take that that tip from Leo and uh, go back and revisit. Yeah, it. yeah, he he really uh, he can take you out there. Indeed, especially on his later, according to Leo, the the later years when he was really um, slipping is kind of some of the best stuff. <laughs> so um, you're not just a guitar player, though. I mean, at least in my perception, you're also kind of a multi instrumentalist. Uh, you know, you do the one man band, you, uh, uh, with, with help from Lou on the, uh, harmony vocals. And, um, you've also done a ton of collaborations and I want to touch on those, but I, I also want to ask you about your songwriting. Uh, you've put out more than 20 albums, EPs and things, uh, several of which, uh, like the latest with the keels are rooted in covers. I definitely want to talk about that but uh the bulk of them are built around instrumentals and original songs and your um original songs i mean they're really good ones too i i write songs uh but when i'm not sweating over my next one um, i'm constantly making up silly songs to like amuse or infuriate my wife are you uh <laughs> the sort of songwriter who carves out time to craft songs or are you constantly kind of grabbing at phrases or, you know, just catching what falls. Um, what's, what, I don't want to ask, I hate the what's your process. I'm just curious about how you find songs in your work. It's okay. I, uh, I guess be between uh, uh, November of 2018 to November of 2019, I released three records. And uh, the uh, in November, I think it was called San, yeah, it was called Sands, which is an instrumental record, my first instrumental record, and that was a lot of older songs that I have written and recorded and forgotten, <laughs> and and kind of revisited and re-recorded and put bass and, and drum samples behind it. And then later came um, uh, Add. I think that came out in March. And 
and add was the follow-up to sans as i was adding back lyrics and and that was uh, a lot of songs that uh i had kind of as backup and uh, never found a place on uh on a record and uh, and then the keels which is the third the third of uh, of the of the three records I've released in that one year, uh, that uh, like 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 the other like the other records I did with the Keels is a complete self indulgent excuse to hang out with my friends and to you know you know pay for it and then have you know we were able to go out and push it. And that's that adds to the self-indulgence of me just wanting to hang out. You know, granted, we don't necessarily have the material, uh, but so so therefore all these covers come into play. And as far as those covers go, those are songs that kind of pick me in the sense that. They grab onto me, and, and I think about them, and I think about an audience reaction, and I can't get them out of my head until I record them and play them live. Unlike uh, the popular uh, method by David Lindley, who's an amazing guitar player, singer, uh, he says, "All you gotta, if you get a song stuck in your head, you just sing it backwards, and it cancels it out." That's not true. So. <laughs> And so, uh, so therefore, with those three records, you know, it's kind of like a backlog of songs, remake of instrumental songs, and then a bunch of cover songs. And uh, that's all me wanting to create music without any material. <laughs> I mean, it's just like once, I mean, I, I wrote so many songs before I had children. And then once I had children, they were... You know, uh, it just came, they came so few and far between. Yeah, there's and, some sort uh, of correlation and, about time and energies and uh, something in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, 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 since the kids came, I've adopted this kind of weekend warrior mentality to where I'm usually gone Thursday morning and home Sunday evening. And and before that, it was kind of like two, three weeks out, and then two two weeks home, and then and then repeat. And uh, and you know when we were home, that that one week, first week would be decompression, and then the second week would be just angst, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> And then that's when the creativity would happen is that second week. And then I would enter into that next three weeks with a bunch of new songs to try out, even if they weren't ready. I was always uh, guilty of doing that, of, of playing songs before I actually knew them. Uh, but uh, I'm happy to say that the, the past week uh, I've been inundated with uh, inspiration to venture into my cell phone onto my uh, note sections to where I just randomly uh, speak lines or words or hooks 
and I'm start, I'm putting things together, and I, I'm happy to say I'm I'm working on three songs right now, and I'm, I feel really um, it's one of those things uh, where you you feel really good, and uh, it's something that antidepressants can't uh, can't touch because once you start to to really be inspiration inspired and start to write songs it kind of brings you you out of out of something and i haven't had that for a while and i feel really good about it well i'm, I'm glad you're uh finding that space yeah that my notes section is and my voice recorder uh are often uh well there's a lot going on in those things um <laughs> that's right that's right you know there used to it used to be little uh well, little you know note little notepads and packs of paper and for a while there i was i was starting to collect these these like uh handmade uh like pieces of paper and uh, uh folded in like this leather bound you know thing that would wrap with a with a uh, a piece of string i got like six of them that are just barely holding on with tons of scribble in them yeah, I used to have like oh, piles of scrap of paper, you know, that would end up yeah. in a dresser, and then I'd go through them periodically and try to assemble something from them, uh, with varying degrees of bad luck. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the good old days. Yeah, the good old days. So um, you touched on a couple things. I want to I want to ping back to you. Um, you mentioned the newer record, Speed, with the keels and the the covers on it, and I wanted to ask you about one in particular. Uh, the song Spirits by the Strombellas. My 16-year-old mm -hmm. daughter Piper hipped me to that record a couple of years ago when it came out, and I'm just yeah. wondering how that mm -hmm. crossed your radar. Well, I remember, I think I was listening to uh, Channel 28 on the Sirius XM dial. Uh, that would be Suspectrum. And... Uh, they were, uh, this was several years ago, and I remember, you know, it's a new Spectrum song, and I remember not hating it. <laughs> and then skipping ahead a couple years to my son uh, really digging it, and he has the uh, the Alexa in his room, and it was on one of his playlists, and I was sitting in there with him while he was listening to music going to bed, and I was like... You know, this will make it interesting. So I can kind of relate to these words. Right. I could totally, a little, totally relate to that. And then, uh, and then it just totally worked out. And uh, and I just love playing that song now live because the Keels have uh, gotten really confident with it, and uh, it's just uh, it's one for the millennials. Yeah, it's a it's a good song. Nice hook and Piper. Yeah, said, Dad, you'll like this, and then ended up buying me the record, and she was right. I like it. Man. So, I haven't. I can't say that I've heard any of the other songs on by that band. That's the one that sticks with me. But uh, I okay, I, good. I've enjoyed good, good. it. I won't. I, <laughs> I won't. I won't journey past that. Then yeah, you're doing fine. The um, the other thing <laughs> I, I wanted to say is uh, <laughs> ah, ah, sorry. <laughs> good. The other thing I wanted to say. <laughs> said i had the pleasure of meeting and talking with the keels uh, at delfest last year um mm -hmm. and we sat down together for a little chat and they teased this the record speed at the time oh. um and i i i love it as 
equally as much as the other two records you guys have done together. And I've seen you guys play together before. Um, you know, they obviously are progressive bluegrass, I guess, in their vibe. Um, it, and you're not necessarily on your own. So what? It, where do you, can you define the common ground or is it just friendship and picking together and you go towards them? It, you do kind of go towards them, don't you? It absolutely started as a friendship first. Um, uh, I was uh, probably before your time in Fredericksburg, but I was working the Irish Brigade, which is uh, now down on, you know, by the train tracks, but it used to be. The noodle ab- shop now, uh, right? Bu- that's correct. Correct. It's a, it used to be above the noodle shop. And I was doing an open mic, and Larry came in with uh, with a side project. His main band was called McGraw Gap, which oh, yeah. is just a badass uh, band that I uh, love dearly. Each member, the original members, uh, even the new members, I love dearly. But uh, he came in with a side project called Fizzawa. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And uh, and that's when I met him, and uh, it just kind of went from there, and and uh, it just became a friendship. Uh, the Keels definitely progressive bluegrass, kind of the black sheep on the outskirts of the IBMA world. You know, I definitely I think they definitely have been nominated. I mean, Larry wrote a song that that Dell uh, recorded and got a Grammy for, or at least got a Grammy for the album that it was on i mean i could have got a grammy for the song i don't really keep track but but uh larry's definitely legit uh and i think jenny and larry are so authentic in the music yet they have a psychedelic sense and lean a little towards the world of improv as well as you know full on being able to nail any kind of traditional thing they just have a little more of an open mind than possibly the IBMA um can accept that's my opinion you know i i don't really know shit i don't know anything that's just my opinion <laughs> i think your musical take about them is is dead on whether the IBMA agrees with you or not well, thank you, but just to finish that thought, my my my, you know, uh, the 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 attraction between the two is that I am a, a a bluegrass lover, and just love the music, and I uh, was really kind of turned on to it by hearing covers done from popular you know bluegrass bands or or people that I respected uh, from outside the bluegrass world. Uh, done like in a like a a real uh traditional bluegrass way like uh, lay down sally by uh, uh uh the seldom seen uh, oh. did a version of it and that just blew my mind you know because it was all traditional up to, uh and then they just laid into this this thing and then you know that's when i started getting into the dead and obviously got into uh old and in the way and uh and that that turned me on you know with the uh the wild horses and which led into just all kinds of ideas which kind of led into you know me bringing it to the keels and 
and so kind of those those two worlds com- combined and and fearlessly connected with my ideas and, and poser mentality and their authenticity kind of makes it work somehow <laughs> with a three piece and the air and the air without without you know so many uh instruments to we can we can play real fast and fancy and 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 still have it be still have it work without being too busy since there's only three of us yeah and your uh, voices blend nicely together too jenny's got a beautiful voice larry's got that uh growl uh of a voice and yours is uh you know the tenor in the between right right in the middle <laughs> i can swim like a fish right in the middle <laughs> So um, this kind of that that leads actually into something uh, you know closer and closer to our goals here. So the uh, you talked about uh, bluegrass versions of popular songs, which is something I've seen you do a number of times. Uh, you, uh, I was looking back through some of my tapes, some of the shows I've taped and the SPCA events and things that you've done here in town, and uh, I saw Grunge Grass on the list, and I, I put that in the queue to play the list too again. Uh, and I think I nice. probably saw the, the your first take on Pettygrass at one of the SPCA gigs um, over at the current Colonial Tavern or whatever by the train tracks there uh, a few years back. Uh, but then you took that out on the road with the Hillbenders. You guys played at Delfest last year, and I was right on the rail for it. Uh, great nice. set. <laughs> a lot of fun. I actually got some really great pictures. Um Great set, a lot of fun. How did you uh, come across the Hillbenders? Because they they were certainly a great fit with that project. Indeed, they were. Uh, the The Pettygrass originated uh, in like 2014 when we were. I was constantly in the studio uh, at Wally Cleaver's uh, in Fredericksburg with my engineer named Jeff Covert. And then, like on pee breaks and in, like lunch breaks and in between stuff, you know, I would start singing some kind of petty song, and then he would like actually play the lick <laughs> that uh, that that like uh, the dude would play, <laughs> and Mike Campbell, yep. Mike Campbell, and and then I'd sing it, and then he'd sing the harmonies, you know, <sighs> and and then one thing led to another, and it was like, well why don't we just do this? And so 2015 for that, uh, SBCA, it was Jay Starling on, on Dobro. I think I played bass and my uh, Jeff Covert played, uh, guitar. And, uh, the coolest thing was, is, was when we rehearsed for that, we would, just, I would record it on my voice memos, uh, on my phone. Cool. And then, so we did the show and it was super fun. And then skip ahead, uh, Petty dies. And I'm in the studio with Jeff and we're working on, uh, something. And, and of course we can't concentrate. So I have the studio time. I pull out my phone and I plug it into the computer and I play these voice memos and, uh, we end up mastering them. These are our, our, our rehearsal tapes of us. Uh, rearranging and, and harmonizing over these petty songs for this gig we were doing, you know, the one you saw in 2015. And we, we mastered them and, uh, and released them on SoundCloud like the next day after he died. I think I listened uh, to that. 
comes and comes so the hill, the hill the hillbenders uh are an amazing band uh who uh did the whole uh who tommy record uh bluegrass like complete uh, the the complete record from start to finish and uh Took it around the took it around the world. I think they they did some Europe UK stuff, and I think they got the attention of uh, what's his name? Pete Townsend. Pete Townsend. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> God damn. And uh, I think they actually got to open for the Who once, maybe twice. Uh, and uh, and so they saw the SoundCloud, and they contacted me and. I was, you know, I, I had issues with it, but they talked me into it. And I'm really glad they did because uh, at the end of the day, the whole show was just all sing-alongs. You know, I saw, I got to see Petty a couple times and he was the one that, that, that said and could legally say, you know, you might notice we're just playing the hits tonight. It's, it's because they're all hit. It's because they're all hits. Yeah, I've saw him once, uh, and he could do a three-hour show, and you'd know every word, every single word, sound. and not and and not have a Tom Petty record. Right. You know, I don't. I don't have any Tom Petty records, but I knew the chorus to at least twenty songs. So I took those twenty songs and made them bluegrass, and uh, and uh, 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 Hillbenders just just dove in and uh and i'm the the coolest thing about the pettygrass was the enhancement that we gave to the material with with three-part harmony and uh yeah sometimes there's two-part harmony sometimes in in the the petty uh heartbreaker stuff but in the pettygrass stuff it was all just full-blown bluegrass three-part harmony which i was very proud of and gave me chill bumps uh, it was so great to see live and uh in fact I, I might have to drop a track from that uh into this into this episode right here for everybody because they, they just if they didn't see it they just don't know what they're missing nice so you know you know e- you know even the losers get lucky sometimes yeah there you go <laughs> <laughs>
Before we get into the Grateful Grass, because we have to get into that, I have to say I was excited to see that one of my favorite projects that you've done uh, with, a, with a group was the WMDs. That was yourself, mm. Keith Mosley, Gib Droll, and Jeff Sipe. I'm, of course, not telling you this, telling the listeners that. Um, and seeing that group group on the riverboat was still probably a top 10 mm. show for me, uh, although wow. made, the paddle wheel made a lot of noise on the tapes. Um, and, <laughs> you guys dusted that off in December. Uh, is there a chance we might see more of that if the schedules align? I oh god, I really hope so. This uh, this past one was was really really special. It's you know we're dealing with you know four separate entities. Gibdroll is very much locked in on salary with Bruce Hornsby, you know, for a certain, uh, you know, uh, amount of time. And it's hard to pull him out because Bruce, Bruce is, is, uh, uh, at the point where he can book out, you know, three, four, five months out. (laughs) And, uh, a lot, a lot of people can't really do that. You know, a lot of people have to really get holds and, and uh, and get into the venues before other people do and but bruce bruce you know he's able to go and and you know yeah we're getting two months we're going to do this two-week stretch here and uh you know so gib can't really necessarily book something in case that happens you know because bruce is awesome and i don't know if you if, if you've seen if you've seen the bruce hornsby band recently it's it's over the top, ridiculously cool. It's uh, a f- fiddle player, uh, bass, you know, drums, gib, uh, and it's just like really, really over the top, mind blowing in the sense of arrangement and improv. And and then you and then you have Keith Mosley, who's definitely, um, you know, very much uh, string cheese world. It's, even if string cheese has a a plan to rehearse, you know, he can't, he can't break away from that. So, you know, it's very stringent in the sense of scheduling. Uh, Jeff Sipe is, is, uh, he's on the, the Warren Haynes train and has been, uh, there was a, a moment where Warren kind of went into the Nashville world and, and got a hold of some, uh, more acoustic players, and kind of held on to that band, and Jeff is very much a part of that, as well as the Jimmy Herring band, uh, yeah. the uh, the O'Teal and Friends. I think uh, 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 Jeff is is playing a bunch of uh, you know, at least a 
one or two shows with O'Teal. Uh, so it's very, very tricky to, to pull people, you know, to make, make them guarantee me the date. Well, I'll, I'll add to the chorus of people who want to see it and I'll make sure, you know, I'll pass this along to these other guys if I get my chance. So, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the stars will align, uh, because that was a, that's a hell of a band. Well, thank you. Yeah, that was definitely me, uh, living out my childhood fantasies, uh, playing that kind of music with that kind of band in front of that kind of crowd at the time. I think that was about 2008, uh, 2007, 2008, that we recorded the, uh, the triple disc called Live. Uh, and the third disc is a, a video, a DVD shot, uh, from the perspective, you know, live from the perspective of the video guy, Scott Johnson, who was working the, the cameras. So it's all shot live. And, yeah, that's uh, uh, I'm very I'm very proud of that. Very proud of that one. It's a good set. I have it I have it downstairs near the uh television stereo arrangement. And yeah, that was um <laughs> that release party was actually right after my birthday in September of two thousand eight on the riverboat. Nice. Was, yeah, that was nice. That was a lot of fun. Um so let's Let's get around to Grateful Grass. You're bringing that band out to uh, Skull and Roses Festival, uh, first weekend of April, and then um, some spots before that in the run-up, and then uh, throughout the summer. Um, I know you change off gigs, so everybody should check the schedule on the website to make sure you know which Keller Williams incarnation you're going to see when you go out. But go out. Um, <laughs> can you... Uh, the name is sort of self-explanatory, particularly given what we've discussed, but tell folks a little bit about what they can expect from a Grateful Grass set. Uh, I guess one of the key questions is who's in the band? Well, Skull and Roses is the Hillbenders, the oh. fantastic Hillbenders we just spoke of from uh, uh, that picked me up for the, the Pettygrass. Uh, we have done... Uh, two, I think, or three uh, Grateful Grass sets, one being uh, New Year's, this past New Year's, uh, in St. Louis at the old rock club. And uh, might I say we had, I think, five confetti cannons, and that was our, our, our New Year's extravaganza explosion. What are you guys, the Flaming uh, Lips? Five confetti <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it was just five flaming lips or flaming lips are like 50 confetti cannons at sure. once, you know, or, or just like a constant leaf blower, uh, blowing confetti constantly. <laughs> I think that's right. With a leaf blower, a leaf blower with a, with a paint roller with, uh, uh, a toilet paper roll on it and just rolling the toilet paper constantly. That's, that's what we should have had. That's flaming lips. That's what I get out of. Flaming lips, so but no. Uh, so, I'm sorry. Uh, well, I haven't, but that's kind of what stands out. But what what a great show! Wayne Coyne is uh, super freak, and I respect I respect him. But uh, Skull and Roses, uh, Grateful Grass is definitely the Hillbenders, and uh, it's it's really cool because the a lot of those guys are in dead cover bands, you know, uh, in Missouri and know the material and it's definitely not a 
stretch, whereas a couple of the guys do not, and they are kind of adding their own, you know, bluegrass intentions to it, which is really cool. Um, I'm really excited about uh, about Skull and Roses. I know that there's a, a huge respect and love for the Grateful Dead, and this what this festival is all about. And I'm hoping that people uh, absorb uh, this you know, liberty that I've taken with these songs, uh, and and hope that they uh, they can grasp onto it. I think it should be well received, and folks are in for a treat with the Hillbenders. Uh playing with you on that. I know the Skull and Roses Festival last year uh, from my friends at the No Simple Road podcast who were there and will be again this year. They uh, they speak so highly of the the vibe and the, the general thing they have going down there, which is a very Grateful Dead fan friendly scene and the, you know, multitude of takes on what we consider Grateful Dead music throughout that festival apparently is uh, is really exciting and really fun and looking at this year's lineup um, we just i just talked to melvin seals um who will be there and uh you know there's just so many great groups on the lineup this year so it's going to be a lot of fun I, I hope you'll have i know your um weekend worry were you were doing your warrior thing on the regular <laughs> i hope you have enough time to uh check out a few of the acts while you're there Indeed, it, it is a Sunday, and I think I fly out the next day from LA. So I think I'm I'm definitely going to be able to hang at least the whole the whole day on Sunday. Cool, uh, do that, and if you see my friends from No Simple Road, stop and say hi, and tell them I said hi. Um, I will, and uh, and I know that Steve Parrish at this particular festival has created the wall of sound. Uh, out of like cardboard boxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen pictures of that previously. It's pretty great. That's re- that's really cool, and that's uh, I think that's a that's a beautiful thing, and this that this vibe continues in that way. So before I let you go, um, I want to ask you some pointed questions about Grateful Dead, uh, which uh, I think uh, the audience wants to know, and it'll also give me some inspiration for some Grateful Dead music to play. Um, where who first turned you on to the dead? Wow. That's a tough one. Uh, yeah, that's probably, uh, I guess, Bo Hubbard and Cam Morin and uh, um, I think those, those were the, uh, the, the main, the main, the main uh, guys who turned me on to it. And that was, that was more like, Cam, my buddy Cam Morin was more like the the record reckoning, you know, the the acoustic for the acoustic side of oh, yeah. um, with the um, bird song and the Cassidy, you know, that was kind of like my first real invitation to the music and and how acoustic it was and how uh, how far it went out and how groovy it was and how just Americana and, and feel good. And then my buddy Bo kind of turned me on to some of the, uh, you know, the cassette tapes. Um, and once you start, you know, you start hearing these audience tapes and the vibe, and then you really dive in and start getting into, you know, uh, soundboard tapes. Um, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of where it got me to go to my first show was the cap center and, 
87. Nice. The nice. Rip, the ripple breakout. Oh, that was a 88. Cap Center 88. And uh, I, I don't mean to be corrective. It was just that I, I remember as a young man, I, years after that, I was in the in the parking lot at the Cap Center. Tickets were going on sale the next morning for some DC area show. And uh, a guy right. was standing there by his car playing bongos. And he starts, he tells me this story about, oh, yeah, I've been coming here forever and blah, 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 blah. And, oh, you, you know, the Ripple, we, I was here for the Ripple. But, man, you know, we, uh, they pl- went into one more Saturday night and we bolted and fired up the hibachis. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and we were sitting there and we're cooking and heating up the grill and, and nobody's coming out and nobody's coming out. And then people start coming out and like, they played Ripple. And I was like, oh, that guy's tripping. And then everybody else comes out and they played Ripple. They played Ripple. And he says to me, dead serious. He looks me straight in the eye and says, never leave till the lights come on. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's tricky. It's super. It's that's a super tricky thing when you got you got stuff to sell. Yeah, it's a it's a dirty trick on their part. Uh, good, God bless them. Never trust <laughs> a prankster, they say, right? So, right. So, right. Um, looking back at tapes, are there any particular you know shows or eras that are are among your favorites at this point? Well, personally, the live uh, the shows that I that I was a part of, I would say the summer of 89, uh, was, uh, super spectacular for me and my young 19 year old brain. That's some great uh, stuff. Yeah, that was, you know, the Brent, uh, the, it was the first, um, uh, Deer Creek, you know, show. It was, uh, it was a bunch of, uh, there's a couple uh, JFK, uh, JFK shows and then Giant Stadium and then RFK and then it went like Indiana and then a couple shows at the Alpine Valley. And uh, I think that that was a, a special, a special trip. Uh, uh, if you want to go back, uh, obviously, um, a certain bootleg that uh, is one of my favorites is the Great American Music Hall in 75. Oh, that's, that's uh, I don't. Th- I don't think they actually played a lot in '75, that to my knowledge. But uh, they were just doing the uh, the blues for Allah, and I want to say that they were doing that in in Bobby's house in Mill Valley that I got to visit. And uh, at least that's what Bobby told me. I don't think that the studio that we were in when I was there was there, but I think that they were. Uh, yeah, they, they, they did there. a lot of the uh, rehearsals, and I think some of the recording in his studio, they called it Aces, uh, was right. uh, worked out there in 75. And then, yeah, they they said, well, we got this record now, and they took it to Great American Music Hall, which is now, uh, that's one from the vault. Uh, and Oh, record. nice. Just killer, killer release with possibly the best uh, and most professional introduction drop into the music that the Grateful Dead ever did with, with Bill Graham. That's right. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, that's all great stuff. I think we'll, we'll find something interesting to play, uh, for everybody. Um, after this, yeah, no, that, that help, that, yeah, the help on the way, just right from the top is just, it's just, uh, it's gives me goosebumps with, with Bill introducing them. I think they come in a little bit early, but it's still, it's still really cool. Yeah, it's it's kind of awesome. 
actually. And they, um, yeah, they played, I think, I want to say off the top of my head, it's four shows that year. They did Golden Gate, mm. uh, where they possibly could have done one of the best Help Slip Franks, but they had to stop, for, I think, for sound problems right before Franklin's Tower. Mm. And then they had to announce that some dudes, some, some woman was having a baby and they needed the dude with a stretcher <laughs> and all of this. And, and then there's the human oh. snack show. And then there's, a, I think, a Winterland, one Winterland show. It's off the top of my head. So the internet will correct me. Um, Classic. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we'll find something great to play for everybody. Keller, um, thank you for spending so much of your time with me this evening. Um, if, next time, let's do this in person as we're, you know, both in, in this same town. Um, I'm not afraid. Yeah. I'm not afraid. Th Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks again. And I will uh, run down all the tour dates for folks after this. And uh, yeah, we'll uh, see you out there on the road. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye. All right. Thanks again to Keller Williams for his time and candor. That was a lot of fun. A couple notes before we get into some tunes. The Autumn Equinox Festival at Wilmers Park that we referenced was September 27th, 1998, which means I did have a kid. In fact, I took my then-future, now-wife to that event, and we had only just begun dating. The lineup included both Charlie Hunter and Pound for Pound and the great band Medeski, Schofield, Stubblefield, and Wood. It was a hell of a show. Keller played both Friday and Saturday, and it was his midday main stage opening set that I recall catching my ear on Saturday. There's a great write-up of the whole thing on jambands.com by Benji Eisen, and I'll link to that in the show notes too. Okay, so let's skim some tour dates really quick. All of these and all of the critical details can be found at kellerwilliams.net, and there's a lot more of them, so definitely if you don't catch it here, you can go there. Either way, go check them out. Here we go. March 6, 7, and 8, Keller will be playing solo in Fort Collins, Nederland, and Aspen, Colorado. On March 12th, 13th, and 14th, he'll be in Memphis, Tennessee, Little Rock, Arkansas, and Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. On March 19th, he'll be in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with Grateful Grass. March 20th will be a solo show in Cleveland, and March 21st, another Grateful Grass show in Buffalo, New York. Squaw Valley for Winter Wonder Grass on March 26th and 27th, and he'll be doing both solo and Keller and the Keels shows there. On April 3rd, he'll be at the Birchmere in Alexandria, Virginia, solo. On April 5th, he'll be out in Ventura, California with Grateful Grass for the Skull and Roses Fest. I know you've heard a good bit about that from us here, so, uh, you know, I hope you're going. Should be fun. And then on the 10th and 11th of April in Big Sky, Montana for more Grateful Grass. And then on the 23rd, 24th, and 25th, uh, he'll be... He'll be doing shows in Omaha, Nebraska, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Madison, Wisconsin. So many shows. Again, go to kellawilliams.net for details and many more dates. If he's not scheduled to come to your town, you either just missed him or he'll be announcing more dates soon. Okay, so we're going to play some tunes. Uh, earlier you heard Keller with Petty Grass from Del Fest last year playing Even the Losers. I hope you dug that. Now, we're going to get into some Grateful Grass from last year. This is not the Hillbenders, but it's pretty great. This is Keller with Virginia's Love Cannon performing Shakedown Street.
taking on Shakedown Street. It's been a hard time. So let's get into some Grateful Dead. Taking a tip from Keller, we're going to look back at 1975, Lindley Meadows, Golden Gate Park, September 28th. This show was billed with Jefferson Starship and is kind of a big deal at the time, as the Grateful Dead were supposedly in the throes of retirement. As I said earlier to Keller, they had only played three other shows in 75. One was a weird single set at Keysar Stadium for an event called the Snack Benefit, that had Bob Dylan and Neil Young and lots of great groups on the bill. The Dead came out with Ned Lagan and Merle Saunders to play Blues for Allah and Stronger Than Dirt, with a little Johnny B. Good thrown in as an encore. Truly weird stuff. I love it. They played a full two-set show in June, debuting a bunch of the new Blues for Allah songs that they were recording at the time. The next was the August 13th show, which is basically the record release party that came to be known as one from the vault. The Blues for All album came out about a week later. And now this, 92875, I slimmed down the show a bit. You can find the whole thing out there with a little effort. So, you're, But you're going to get the meat here. We've got help on the way into Slipknot, some amusing banter, then the music never stopped with Matt Kelly on harmonica. Can you hear him? Uh, then They Love Each Other, then Franklin's Tower, some more amusing banter, and then Truckin', an 11 jam, a little bit of drums, Stronger Than Dirt, and a Not Fade Away, which ironically will fade out on you, so don't get too attached. But anyways, thank you so much for listening. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and follow me on the Twitter or Instagram at BrokedownPod. We're also on Facebook if that's your thing. But until next time, be well.
difficulties here. If there's a doctor in the house, would you please come backstage because there's a woman having a baby. a need for a doctor right in the center of uh, right in the center of the people here directly in front of the stage just in front of the mixer um, is that where all the people are jumping all the people are jumping up and down and waving their hands yes they need a doctor over there somewhere that's where the doctor is needed apparently don't everybody wait and we need a, a doctor backstage for a lady having a baby Maybe there's even two of them. Is there one out there? No. Yes. Okay. Maybe there's one out there, and maybe there's one back here, but nobody's really sure. Okay, the baby's being born right out there where all the people are waving. Everybody wave who's gonna have, who's gonna have a baby. No, 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 that's not what I meant to say. Right out there in the middle, right there. Or I thought she was. <laughs> There's a baby being born around here somewhere.
we need a stretcher in the truck behind the sound mixer. We need a stretcher in the truck behind the sound mixer.
Thank you. 